I have found out beat news in depth for you. Good evening, and welcome to Outbeat News in Depth. I'm Greg Moralia. Well, earlier this month on Outbeat News, we told you that Russia's recent annexation of the Crimea region has LGBT people fearing for their lives. We also reported on similar conditions occurring in Uganda, all of which are causing gay men and women to flee their country in hopes of finding asylum in a safer place. We begin tonight talking with Aaron Morris, who is the legal director of immigration equality here in the United States. He's here to tell us about the life-saving work he and his colleagues are doing with this issue. And this summer, Toronto is hosting the fourth annual World Pride Celebration. We'll talk with Toronto Police Constable Danielle Botineau, who's coordinating the International LGBT Law Enforcement Conference that will be happening at the same time and will be part of this year's World Pride Celebration. And finally, for this month's Outbeat Youth segment, we'll introduce you to a young singer-songwriter from New Jersey whose original music is inspired by the many struggles he's faced coming out as a young gay man. So stay with us. All of this is coming up right after your Outbeat Radio News for this Sunday, April 27th, 2014. I have found Outbeat Radio News, your source for LGBT news from the North Bay and beyond. The Russian news site RT.com is reporting that after cracking down on its LGBT citizenry last year, when President Vladimir Putin signed the controversial homosexual propaganda law, some Russian lawmakers are now taking aim at HIV-positive individuals. Lawmakers are proposing a bill that would force people who have, quote, dangerous diseases, including HIV, to be fingerprinted in order to create a nationwide database. State Duma Deputy Roman Kudayakov of the Liberal Democratic Party told local media he amended the bill on fingerprinting that would include the creation of a database of those infected with dangerous diseases. The agency would collect medical records and make patients undergo fingerprinting. Kudayakov said he got the idea because he believes some people infected with deadly diseases change their names and vanish from Russia's systems. The lawmaker claims the fingerprint database would make it easier to fight crime and impossible to disappear from the grid. The measure, which was drafted last August, requires every Russian resident to register with a fingerprint scan. Those that refuse to be part of the database would face a $1,400 fine, and those non-Russian citizens that refuse could be banned from the country for 15 years. And in Napa, Napa's LGBTQ community is planning their pride celebration and invites you to take part. The Napa LGBTQ Connection Director, Ian Stanley, said, Napa Valley LGBTQ Pride is different in many ways from other communities. For the last few years, it hasn't been a single day or a festival, but a variety of exciting community events spread over a number of days. Next Wednesday evening, interested folks from across the community are getting together to work on planning Napa's LGBTQ Pride, and they need your help. The first planning meeting will take place at the Voices and LGBTQ Connection Office at 780 Lincoln Avenue in Napa. That's coming up this Wednesday, April 30th from 6 to 7.30 p.m. You can learn more about Napa Valley Pride plans at our website at outbeatnews.com. And here locally, plans for this year's Sonoma County Pride celebration are already underway for a celebration that will run from Friday, May 30th through Sunday, June 1st in Guerneville. This year's theme is Free to Be. Highlights of the weekend include welcoming specials at local merchants and restaurants from Friday through Sunday, dance parties on Saturday night, and a full day of celebration on Sunday with a parade down Main Street followed by a parade village on the town plaza with vendor booths. 
Other Sunday events include a commitment ceremony, family pool party, and the annual interfaith service. The Grand Marshals for this year's parade are Mayors Carol Russell of Cloverdale, Robert Jacob of Sevastopol, and Guerneville's unofficial mayor, Roger Jensen. The parade begins at 11 a.m. at the western end of Main Street and will progress east. As always, everyone's looking forward to an imaginative and diverse offering of floats, parade contingents, and celebrants. You can learn more about how to be involved in the parade or get a vendor booth by going to the Sonoma County Pride website at www.sonomacountypride.org. And after 18 years of presenting lesbian and gay comics to audiences in Sonoma County, We Mean It Productions, created by Robin Bramhall and Ellen Merrimont Silver, are stepping off the stage and away from their roles as producers. They released a joint statement saying... We have enjoyed getting to know so many talented comments and have appreciated the support of Sonoma County audiences and sponsors at the annual Pride Comedy Night each June. Through all the years, we've been lucky to have friendly support and partners with the Wells Fargo Center of the Arts, and we're grateful to have had the chance to work so closely with their caring and professional staff. And be sure to stay connected with our website for all of your 2014 Pride celebration information for Sonoma, Napa, and San Francisco. Everything you need to know is in one place at OutbeatNews.com. Now here's your calendar events for the coming week. On Monday, April 27th at 7 p.m., the Parents of Transgender Youth Support Group will meet at the Positive Images Center, 312 Chin Street in Santa Rosa. And on Tuesday, April 28th at 7.30 p.m., the Trans Group will meet at the Positive Images Center, same location. And be sure to save this date. The 34th annual Russian River Women's Weekend will happen May 15th through the 19th. You can learn more at www.RussianRiverWomenWeekend.org. And for more information about local LGBT events happening here in the North Bay, go to GaySonoma.com. If you have news or an event you'd like to share with our listeners, tell us about it by going to our website at OutbeatNews.com. Follow us all week long on Facebook and Twitter for the latest LGBT news and information from here in the North Bay and beyond. For Gary Carnavalli, I'm Greg Moralia. Outbeat Radio News, your source for LGBT news from the North Bay and beyond. Immigration Equality is a nonprofit organization that is working to help LGBT people living in oppressive and dangerous countries around the world to find safety here in the United States. Here are just a few stories from those they've helped. I spent all my childhood and all my life in Moscow. It's not the place where you want to live if you are gay. They say you are free like to beat gays kill gays and people feel that they have the right to do this. I was beaten by police, I was laying down in blood during the attempt of gay pride. There is no any place where you can be sure you are safe. You never know what's going to happen to you next minute, tomorrow, next hour. Nicaragua is no easy country for the gay people. I never say it's, I am lesbian in Nicaragua, never. The only person who I open talking about it was my grandma, because my grandma uh, protect me. My friend was working in the gas station, 
And when I go to the gas station and asking for my friend, say some, something happening with him, nobody knows. My friend was gay too. The people from the town did some rumor and they killing my friends. They never got it, the, the people who killed. Uganda, Uganda is home. Home is always good and sweet. It is also a place where life can be very miserable for certain members of society. I am a transgender identifying individual. Our own people do not understand it yet. They are only beginning to understand the issue of sexual orientation. The local pastors claimed to be able to heal people from homosexuality. The pastor came right for me and they took me on the stage and they started to strip me naked. And they were laying hands on me all over, including my genitals. They hurt me physically. I was so embarrassed, ashamed. It was very nasty. Sometimes you even think that it's how it should be. It's how other people live, but of course, after certain incidents, you have to make a decision to leave the country, which I did, and I never regret. When David was killed, David Cato, I started to smell death. I started feeling like death was close. This is David and me. This guy was an activist uh, before me. Here, he thought I would die before him even. He thought I would be killed before him. My grandma, she told me, you needed to, to look for a safe place. If you stay here in Nicaragua, you never can like, build your family. It was her. It was really her. I, I have a daughter that I love so much. I am not ready for her to be an orphan. I need to save my life, and I have a dream now, a personal dream, and I plan my exit. In the political asylum, is not easy. If I don't find the immigration equality, I don't think so. Can I do that something in my life now here? When people want to come here, I'm like, I don't know. But if you know that your, your life is really, really, really in trouble, take off for your life. Exit, then immigration equality is your brother or sister at that point. Immigration equality gave me an interpreter. They found lawyers who took my case pro bono. Imagine if you just left your country and came here and then there's no group like immigration equality. You're not sure about where you're going to sleep. You're not sure about the food you're going to eat. You don't have that money most of the time. How are you going to find a lawyer in a strange country? And how are you going to pay them? I'm living now in the United States for 10 years. When I come here, I really won the lottery because I met Leida. After my grandma, um, probably she is the better person in my life. Definitely. I'm kind of getting back to my feet now that uh, I won the asylum. I love my life here. I found a lot of friends. I do my art. I found a nice job. I've never had such a life. It, it would be impossible in Russia. I think that I'm beginning to get back what I lost. And I want to study music and probably I will do some activism through the instruments. 
the decision to leave is your decision about your life. I'm not the strongest person, but sometimes it's the choice of your life. Yeah, it's the choice between life and death. After 10 years, my grandma passed away in December, the last December. She was a hundred years old. She called me and said, I know you are happy now. I know you got your family. I really was so happy to know Fernando. I am ready to go. She told me I am ready because she knows for sure I am safe and happy now. Joining us now is the legal director of immigration equality, Aaron Morris. Aaron, welcome to Outbeat News in Depth. Thanks. It's nice to be here. Well, we appreciate your time. Tell us about immigration equality. Immigration equality is a national nonprofit that provides free legal services to gay, lesbian, bisexual, transgender, or HIV positive immigrants. Fantastic. And are you working with people from all over the world then? We do. Uh, we certainly have certain hotspots where we get a lot of frequent clients, but um, generally I would say, you know, if there's a country where it's not safe to be gay or trans, we've, we've had a client from there. I'm sure you're really busy these days. How long has the organization been in existence and what brought it about? Immigration equality has been around for uh, about 20 years, actually, and it was created because there were a group of very passionate and compassionate immigration lawyers, first based out of New York, but then sort of nationally who had a large LGBT clientele and saw that there were certain needs not being met by that community. And so they created an organization to do just that. Wow. And you're based solely in New York, is that right? We have an office in New York and in D.C., but we take cases from all over the country. And are you, in, are you working primarily then with people seeking asylum, or are you also involved uh, at the political level on, in immigration policy? We do both. Uh, we work pretty much on three large projects. One is uh, for asylum, and that includes both direct representation, but also you know, tracking patterns to find areas of the law where we really need to change the system and using that in our DC office to create better policy. Second big project is for family reunification for couples or families that are separated by, you know, first by the DOMA law, and then after that, even after the fall of DOMA, a lot of our couples don't have access to marriage equality. And so it makes it really hard for those families to stay together. And then, then the third project we focus on a lot is for detained LGBT individuals. So while it's pretty terrible for any immigrant to be in civil detention, which is just like prison, it's particularly bad for our community because they are much more vulnerable and have uh, you know, a lot of problems with guards and other inmates mm -hmm. in, in those facilities. Yeah, and I bet this is especially true in, in countries like Russia and Uganda. We've been following a lot of the developments there of the passage of the anti-LGBT laws and some of the stories about people who have been arrested, you know, simply for being out and who they are in their countries. Uh, talk a little bit about Russia and, and some of the things you're encountering there. We've seen a huge spike in the number of Russians that need our assistance. And that's sort of, we track that in two ways. The first is through direct uh, contact with Russians in the United States who come to our office, who ask for assistance, who want to apply for asylum. And the second are for Russians who seek our assistance to get out of Russia. 
Uh, and we really have seen a, an enormous increase in both of those kinds of uh, requests for help. And it started about two years ago, to be honest. Um, first with the, a, a big push in Russia towards homophobia, which was unexpected and, and terribly unfortunate. But also, you know, the, the more steps that the state of Russia took towards making it illegal to be gay or illegal to talk about being gay, uh, you know, I think people got really scared and started to want to leave. And so what's the... What's the average age group then that you're encountering? Are you is this primarily youth that are trying to flee, uh, or are you seeing people of all ages? Oh, I would suppose that depends on your definition of youth. Um, the older I get, the younger that yeah. seems. Uh, I, you know, I think our our clientele does tend to be on the younger side. Uh, we help a lot of people from age 20 to 26. Mm-hmm. Um, I think an even greater majority of those are, are probably around 23, 24 years old. So I would imagine that, that Russians probably have more access to you than, say, LGBT folks in Uganda. Is that true? Uh, well, you know, thanks to the internet, a lot of people find us um, in a way that, you know, 10 years ago just wouldn't be possible. So, you know, one of the saddest parts of our job is to counsel LGBT Ugandans or, or, or anybody who can't get out of a country either because they don't have the means or they can't get the visa uh, or, you know, they're literally fleeing from house to house to save their lives. Having, having the, the resources of the wherewithal to get out can be really challenging. Yeah, I would imagine those countries aren't necessarily real supportive. As anti-LGBT as they are, uh, they're not real supportive in helping people leave. Well, not only are they not supportive, but, you know, e- even for super sympathetic individuals who, who might be inclined to help uh, an LGBT person, it, it can often put that person at risk. And so why they might, you know, not actively target our community, it, it, it's a huge disincentive to assist them also if the government is watching or you know, targeting mm-hmm. people for, for helping gay people. So this harkens back to the 1930s in, in Germany with Jewish people, doesn't it? It is remarkably similar in a very scary way. Very scary. So talk about asylum a little bit. You know, that's a a word we've heard a lot, but what exactly is involved in someone who is seeking asylum here, and what's the process they have to go through to get that all approved? Uh, Asylum can be both a remarkably quick process and a horrendously long process, sort of depending on the how you ask for it, whether you're not in the United States, whether or not you do it voluntarily. So you know, the quickest or most expedient way to ask for asylum is if if you are already inside the U.S., away from a border, away from the airport, and you file an application for asylum, you may get an interview within three months. The The asylum office basically has an officer trained in refugee law who listens to your claim and decides whether or not you're eligible for asylum. And if so, they can grant that request within two weeks of your interview. If they don't understand that re- that claim or they don't believe you deserve asylum, then they'll refer you to an immigration judge. Immigration court is a lot different. At that posture, you're, you know, you're in a full trial and the government's hired a lawyer to try to convince the judge to deport you. And you're on your own or with a lawyer, if you're lucky, to file for asylum to defend yourself against deportation. Wow. I mean, that sounds like a scary process in and of itself. Uh, it, you know, it, it's scary, but it's also it's also a lot to ask for someone who just fled a country where they were being persecuted. Um, you know, to have the resources again, the wherewithal, 
and the ability to file for asylum when, you know, maybe they have a different education system, maybe they don't speak any English. You, you know, a lot of our clients are suffering very, suffering very terribly from post-traumatic stress disorder, from trauma-related illness. Um, and if, if you don't have a lawyer, you are much less likely to be successful. So if a person is granted asylum, what exact status do they receive then here in the U.S.? Can they work? Asylum is a really great benefit. You, you get a whole bundle of um, otherwise really difficult to attain uh, benefits in the United States. The first is permanent position, uh, permission to stay in the United States. The second is sort of the ability to sponsor immediate relatives. So if you have a spouse or children, they can follow you. Uh, through asylum, or if they're already here, they're automatically granted asylum. Now, the third is that you have work authorization and a path towards citizenship, so that if you've been an asylee for a year, you can ask for a green card after your first year. Um, you can also travel internationally on a refugee travel document, provided that you get permission from the government before leaving. And you qualify for a lot of health benefits, uh, such as Medicaid and Medicare, or food stamps, or you know a lot of other things that are generally reserved for U.S. citizens. Mm. So it sounds like a status just shy of citizenship. Uh, it's, it's a lot shy of citizenship, but it's, you know, it's such a remarkable change in a person's life um, to go from being without permission in the United States to having asylum. Mm -hmm. um, you know, it can really change a person's entire perspective in that, you know, they have access to education, they have access to, to good health care, to um, a good job. They feel much more secure in the United States. But of course, filing for asylum also has one great risk. If you're in the U.S. without permission and you file for asylum and the U.S. government doesn't give it to you, you put the government in a position where their only other option really is to try to deport you. You know, there's a lot of people who live in the U.S. and they're too scared to file for asylum, even if they may be eligible because they're so afraid to be deported back to a country where they were persecuted that it just doesn't make sense for them. And, and I guess when I think of the word asylum, at least the story as I've heard traditionally have been, you know, some political figure in a, in a country who's fleeing because they've been ousted or whatnot. Uh, how common is it then for just sort of a quote unquote average person who comes to the U.S. by whatever means to get granted asylum? Local asylum offices have different grant rates. Um, you know, San Francisco and New York are quite different. And there are a lot of factors that, that might give rise to that disparity. In New York, uh, you know, I think probably the asylum office grants around 30% of the claims they hear, but immigration court grants more like 50%. In California, that, that number's a little higher. Hmm. But again, because there's such a great risk for filing for asylum, some people with weaker claims might self-select out of that. So what have you seen in terms of a change in U.S. policy around supporting particularly LGBT people fleeing countries like Russia and Uganda? It sounds from the administration, uh, we heard uh, Vice President Joe Biden at the LAHRC conference talk about how horrific laws uh, like those that exist in Russia are. What's your experience with U.S. policy, I guess is what I'm asking. Has it changed? I think I would separate U.S. policy in two ways. Domestically, the, the U.S. government has a pretty good reputation for granting LGBT claims if it is, in fact, dangerous for you. I mean, you, you know, if you're, if you're from France and you file for asylum because you're a lesbian, you're not going to win, and that's okay. Uh, but if it's truly dangerous and you can prove it, the U.S. Is, uh, responds really well to that. Um, 
internationally. You know, we we hear a lot of rhetoric from the Obama administration and from Secretary Kerry about really condemning other countries for being anti-LGBT. But mm-hmm. we haven't yet seen a vast movement to get those people out of those countries. Or at least the, the U.S. government says, you know, if you make it to the U.S., we'll hear your claim. We'll give you asylum if you deserve it. But we haven't been able to move the ball further in helping people who really need to get out right now. And that's a great point, because there really are two different levels of aid here. There's sort of the passive role, which it sounds like we're in right now, and then there would be a more proactive role where we're actually reaching out and inviting people in. We've done that with other countries, right, for different circumstances? We have. uh, You know, a good example would be in the 90s, there was a program to get Soviet Jews out of Russia um, because they they were facing such horrible mistreatment there. Um, you know, there are, there are other, there are a few other similarly sort of discrete groups that the U.S. has extended that benefit to, but, um, you know, they're hesitant to do so. It's complicated. People still have to go through security clearances. They still have to, they still get kind of stuck in country for a long time. Um, and so for a variety of reasons, we're still telling people who contact us, get out any means that you can. It really doesn't matter how you get to the U.S., if you're eligible for asylum here, the government will forgive a lot of, you know, otherwise violations of immigration law if you're truly fleeing persecution. Right, right. So in addition to Russia, talk about some of the other countries with people that you're working with. Our number, uh, our number one country, unfortunately, has always been Jamaica. Um, you know, I think a lot of people don't know how violently homophobic people in Jamaica can't be. Certainly not all people are. But it's a, it's a country where the government is tolerant of homophobia, and there are a lot of really dangerous places to live in Jamaica. So for 10 years, Jamaica has been our number one uh, origin, origin country for people fleeing persecution. And a lot of that, I think, has to do with access to the U.S., uh, you know, the ability to come here through a tourist visa or a work visa, to realize how good it is in the United States, how much safer it is in the United States, and then, you know, find your way towards asylum for people who speak fluent English. Uh, second is Mexico. Um, again, probably some of that is proximity, but it's still not safe in Mexico, even though Mexico City has passed a law to allow same-sex couples to marry. A lot of that has to do with socioeconomic advantage. If you are poor and LGBT, it can be very dangerous for you in Mexico. Hmm. After Mexico, I would say we we have a lot of Central American countries that are sort of tied for fourth place. Um, Guatemala and Honduras, El Salvador have always been pretty strong for us. And so that brings to mind, as as I think about countries like Mexico, I mean, certainly Jamaica, I've heard a lot of stories about being super violent, but some of the other countries that we haven't heard about, what's kind of a stereotypical example of someone who flees here from persecution uh, in their own country? What, what kinds of things have they faced? Is there, is there a typical scenario of someone who would be granted asylum? Mistreatment is, is pretty varied depending on the region or a person's background. But it's important to remember that you don't have to prove that you've already been horribly mistreated in order to qualify for asylum. You really just have to prove that it's reasonably possible it could happen in the future. And a good example of that would be you know, a lesbian who comes to the United States from Saudi Arabia, 
maybe she came to study and she was and realized or came out of the closet here. So it would be reasonable to expect that no bad things had ever happened to her in Saudi Arabia. But, you know, if you're if you're a lesbian from Saudi Arabia and you can prove those two basic facts, you've got a really strong asylum claim. Um, you know, unfortunately, we see violence that varies depending on region as well. So the people from the Caribbean, often clients show us scars from being set on fire, being chopped with machetes, a lot of sort of mob violence related injuries. Uh, women generally have a lot of a different kind of violence. It's usually a family member or a close community member who assaults them often with through sexual assault. Um, and, that, and that's unfortunately pretty common throughout the world. Wow. So talk about how people here in the U.S. can help. People in the U.S. can help in a lot of different ways. You know, Immigration Equality is a nonprofit. We do not charge our clients for any part of our service. So donations to Immigration Equality, I would greatly encourage. Uh, a second is that if you just know anybody you think might be in need to speak to a lawyer, we have a free hotline at 212-714-2904. We'll give anyone free legal advice. You know, if if you can afford a lawyer, we'll find you a, a lawyer referral. But if you can't afford a lawyer, you know, if you are indigent and you are an, an asylum seeker, we're likely to be able to, to represent you for free. Great. So in terms of other ways of helping, when people are fleeing another country, are you looking for folks on ground here to help them get started, maybe with shelter or helping them find jobs? You know, if someone wanted to do more than send a check, which obviously is very important, are there other things that either local grassroots organizations can do or individuals? We do our best to have a, a pretty robust referral system for people looking for social services. And I, I think that one of the biggest hurdles to finding legal assistance is first that, you know, you have to, you have to have stable housing, you have to have food, you have to have, you know, some access to English language ability. And so there are other organizations we, we sort of work really closely with who focus more on finding uh, volunteers for that sort of work. And, you know, if, if someone was curious about that or, or wanted to help out or had a spare bedroom, of course, if they contacted Immigration Equality, we'd be happy to put them in touch with a, with a local group. This brings to mind another question. I know here in California we have, you know, many subculture communities, I like to call them. For example, there's a very large Russian population here in the Bay Area. What's your experience been working with groups like that who are maybe first or second generation families from Russia? Naturally, someone coming from Russia might want to connect with them. Are you finding those groups in the U.S. to be accepting of LGBT people or being as resistant or standoffish as those in the country? Well, it's, it's a pretty big concern of ours when we hear from a client that they are surrounded by people from their home country. Because although, you know, coming to the United States tends to soften someone's disposition towards LGBT rights, or towards LGBT people, it doesn't necessarily mean that they're going to be LGBT friendly. Um, you know, one of the reasons why our clients don't file for asylum sooner often is because they live with family who are homophobic, or they live with community that's homophobic. And so while we certainly have great partnerships with some 
ethnic communities or nationality communities that are uh, in the United States. We generally try to keep our clients more in the sphere of LGBT communities rather than in communities of their home country. That makes sense. So tell us where we can go to learn more about immigration equality. Immigration equality, you can reach us at www.immigrationequality.org or by calling our national hotline. That number is 212-714-2904. Great. And if you missed either the website or that phone number, we'll have it on our own website at outbeatnews.com. We've been talking with Aaron Morris from Immigration Equality. Thanks so much for your time tonight, but, but more importantly, for all the amazing work you're doing saving LGBT lives around the world. Thanks, Greg. And we'll be back with more right after this. There are more than 2,000 people living with HIV and AIDS in Sonoma County. 500 of them don't know they have it, so neither do their partners. If you've ever suspected you've been exposed to HIV and want to know whether you're carrying the virus that could lead to AIDS, there's a place you can be tested for free, confidentially, and anonymously with results in just 20 minutes. Call face-to-face at 544-1581 or visit f2f.org. We want you to know your status. The World Pride Celebration will happen this June in Toronto, Canada. And one of the many special events happening as part of this celebration is the International LGBT Law Enforcement Conference. Toronto Police Constable Danielle Botineau is organizing this gathering, and she's here now to tell us a little bit about this conference and more about World Pride. Danielle, welcome to Outbeat News In Depth. Thanks. So talk about this special conference you're putting together this summer. So, so this uh, end of June, from uh, June 25th to June 27th, uh, the Toronto Police Service is hosting a LGBTQ law enforcement and criminal justice conference. Um, I thought it would be important, since we're hosting World Pride this year in Toronto, um, to maybe, you know, take it upon us to have this opportunity to invite gay officers from around the world and their allies so that we could actually uh, learn from each other more um, via workshops and seminars. Um, here in Toronto, we have a lot of various policy and practices in place, and I can tell you that <clears throat> our service is very kind of forward-thinking, and we've done a lot of positive stuff in relation to the relationship with the community. Um, so part and parcel of that is to highlight those, but also learn from each other in this conference. Um, because everybody's approach and everybody's, um, you know, who they can be is different across the board. And we're very fortunate here in Canada that you can really truly be who who you are for the most part. I'm not saying that there's not issues, but I think it's always important that if we can all get together to learn from each other and to move forward, um, that if if there's an opportunity there to do so. And that's really what, you know, um, I'm hoping to accomplish through this conference. And just to make... uh, you know, communication more more effective and have best practices in place that, you know, perhaps other services or other individuals can take back to their, their services to be able to use. Fantastic. Uh, and where are you seeing some of the registrations come from? I know these conferences have taken place periodically, you know, usually once a year or so. Where are the officers coming from who are coming to Toronto this summer? Well, they're definitely coming off the across Ontario and across Canada. We've had much interest, but we've also have we have a contingent coming in from Amsterdam, and I've also received some, uh, obviously, some um, input and uh, interest from the U.S. across the board. From recently, there was outreach from Norfolk, Virginia, obviously from L.A. Um, so it's kind of coming across from everywhere. We have one of our partners that 
We've done work with in Montenegro in the Balkans. He'll be coming to speak as well. So it's really across the board, which is great. What an amazing opportunity for the officers to really meet people from all over the world. Yeah, absolutely. Fantastic. So talk about some of the training that's going to be offered specifically. So some of the workshops that we do have in place, um, within our service we have a uh, program that's called Report Homophobic Violence Period uh, program that we've launched across Canada and recently taken it into Europe. And it's, it's an educational awareness, public awareness um, campaign. But what really it was, it came together back in 2007. And really what it was, it was an opportunity um, for us to reach out to the gay community because at that time they weren't feeling comfortable reporting based on the history mm -hmm. that we've had with them. So that'll be one of our workshops. Um, another workshop, and recently we just, this is actually going to be a panel discussion, um, our Ontario Association Chiefs of Police Diversity Committee recently launched a uh, document and it's best practices in policing in the LGBT communities in Ontario and it's the first of its kind in Canada and um, the aim of the document is to help police services address the importance um, of members dealing with the gay community but also for members internally um, being part of the, the gay community and the various best practices services across Canada um, I mean, across Ontario, have in place, and so they'll be speaking to that. <clears throat> um, there'll be a Safer and Accepting Schools workshop that we put on one of, by one of our community organizations, which is the only LGBT human rights um, organization in Canada. Like I said earlier, we have a uh, doctor who is an advisor to the Prime Minister of Montenegro who will be coming to speak in regards to the, the community and the relationship between the government and the police um, officers in Montenegro. Um, our hate crimes unit will be putting together a state of hate in Toronto to kind of get a feel for <coughs> what's taking place um, in Toronto itself. Uh, we have a corrections officer who will speak to transitioning in the workplace. They're one of the very first um, corrections officers who worked full-time for the Ministry of Community Safety and Correctional Services and transitioned from from male to female and had nothing but positive support. So they'll be speaking to their transition in, within the workplace. And also we'll have um, our diversity management from Toronto speaking to processes and practices that we have in place um, for, for Toronto. Um, as well, just recently confirmed, one of my speakers will be coming in, and I'm sure you probably know them, Greg, is um, Christy Mallory from the Williams Institute at UCLA, who will be speaking to that document that was put together, that uh, research, right. um, discrimination against law enforcement officers on the basis of sexual orientation and gender identity, which is, I think is going to be great. There's a few more things that, that, are, that are kind of in the work still, but for the most part, that's a good chunk of what we're doing right now. That is going to be an entirely full week. Yeah, yeah, it is. That's it is. that is incredible, and it sounds like you know Toronto has got so many model programs out there that everybody from around, certainly around the U.S., but around the world, could learn from. Yeah, I I will say that a lot of people do come to us, and one of the key ones is that document that was recently released from the Ontario Association Chiefs of Police. Since that's gone out, um, I've had so much interest in what we are doing as a service, and currently we have a police chief in power, Bill Blair, who is nothing but supportive in regards to our relationship with the gay community, but also the gay officers within within the service itself. So um, I think as a result of 
his support, ongoing support over the years. That, that's why people come to us. They see what we have in place, and they want to learn from us. Fantastic. And you mentioned World Pride. How is that going to differ from your normal, typical, huge Pride celebration? Well, um, World Pride, this is the fourth of its kind. It's the first one in North America. Um, Size-wise, we're anticipating, you know, probably doubling in size, if not tripling in size. Wow. Um, and just bringing, you know, members of the community from across the world to, to celebrate in Pride. Why... Our conference is going on, why World Pride is going on. There's also a huge human rights conference that's going on at the University of Toronto in conjunction with World Pride. So um, the people that are coming to the city is, is, is amazing what's taking place. I'm glad I got my hotel reservations early. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> so will members of the conference be participating then in, in Pride events? So we, there's a couple of things going on. Every year we host a Chief's Pride reception at headquarters. So the entire uh, conference participants will be invited to that. Um, and then we'll be taking, within our service, we have what, what I would like to refer to as a, our version of a gay-straight alliance. It's our internal support network for LGBT members. And they're going to be doing a big kickoff on the Friday night, the 27th, down in the village. So, and we're going to be partnering with one of our community partners on that. So there'll be that opportunity as well. And on top of that, if people are choosing to stay for the weekend, We've invited everybody from the conference to participate in marching with the Toronto Police contingent in the in the big pride parade on the Sunday, the 29th. Holy cow. And, you know, having had the chance to march uh, in the San Francisco Pride Parade, I'll never forget the first time. It's, it's an incredible experience uh, for anybody going to that conference. It's going to be, it'll be amazing. It yeah. Really it's, particularly in, with something that size. Yeah, I can I can attest to the fact that uh, the first time I marched in it, it was very overwhelming, the response we got. And I wanted to put that opportunity out there for members that are coming from across the world, from around the world, to have that opportunity to march. Because I know there's a lot of them that would never have that opportunity to march. That's right. And to feel the support that you do have out there, it's, it's absolutely amazing. Yeah. Let's go back to your department for a bit. You know, are there a lot of out men and women then? Well, we're a service of... Um, both uniform and civilian, we're a service about just over around 8,000 members. And I can say that there's not as many as you would think there are for a service that mm-hmm. big. Um, but in saying that, I can honestly say that since I've been in this position, I've had somebody come out to me in some way, shape, or form on a, probably on a biweekly basis, which to me speaks that there's still work to be done. Um, I'm not saying that there's no homophobia within the service or anything like that. I think there are still some issues. But as, as you and I both know, everybody has their own coming out process and how that looks vary from person to person. Sure. And their, comf- and their comfort level changes. But we're hoping, the education that I bring you know, to the service, we're hoping to make that better. And I think we have for members. But for, for a service of 8,000, like I said, um, there's not as many as you would think would be out based on the size. Hmm. And that's interesting because I think for departments like yours that really do put a lot of effort into creating an accepting workplace, um, the individual has to meet, at least meet that organization halfway, right? I mean, it's yeah. it's one thing to create the the environment, but you still have to have the guts to come out. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, for so sure. very good. So talk about where people can go to learn more about this conference. So our website for the conference is www.torontopolicelgbtqconference.com. Um, and then in there we have, um, you know, everything from our mission and vision statement to speakers. I'll be putting up a schedule shortly. Um, there's an outline of a bunch of workshops 
and that's also where they can register uh, um, for the, both the hotel and the conference. Great. And so there is hotel space reserved for people coming to the conference. Yeah, the um, Sheridan Center Hotel, which is right downtown Toronto across from City Hall, is who we're partnering with for this conference, and um, they've been great, and everything, they're going to be meeting all our needs, and they've we partnered with them on various conferences in the past, so I'm really looking forward to uh, putting this together with them. You're doing an amazing job. Just just from the brief description you've given us, I can't wait to uh, to get up there and to meet you in person and to be part of this event. It's going to be amazing. Well, thank you so much, Greg. I, I mean, you've shown me support right from the beginning when I did the outreach to you, and I, I'm looking forward to, uh, to you being part of the conference as well. Absolutely. Well, it's an important thing for law enforcement, and, and really I think it's a, it's a real testament to you and your organization for sponsoring it, particularly at a time when I think a lot of organizations would say, this is too much, you know. Yeah. We've got this huge event going on, and, and then we're going to try and do this too. It's great. Absolutely. It's great. Absolutely. Great. But I can tell you that when the chief found out that this proposal was put together, he jumped on board right away. Um, he, he recognizes that it's a huge opportunity to even show further support, uh, especially for internal members that uh, are still going through struggles. Mm-hmm. And they, you know, some still feel that they can't be who they, they, they are um, at the workplace. So I think him jumping on board right away just is a testament to mm-hmm. who he is as, as a police, uh, uh, chief of police. Well, that's fantastic. And, you know, you made a really good point earlier that, that I wanted to comment on, is, and that is that uh, I think in today's world, having World Pride celebrations like this and showing the world that, uh, that LGBT people can be supported and accepted is, is more important now than ever. Uh, with all of the things going on in Russia and Uganda and, and Cameroon and, of course, still going on in Jamaica, yeah. And other places, you know, where, where it's illegal to have any sort of a demonstration of pride, even wearing a rainbow pin. Uh, yeah. To see such the opposite take place is, is really important. Absolutely. Um, and, and I've told people here in the U.S. Who, who say, oh, I'm burned out on pride. I'm tired of pride. Do we need pride anymore? It's like, yeah, we need it more than ever, and you need to be part of it. Exactly. So. Exactly. Excellent. Well, Danielle, thanks so much for spending time with us tonight on Outbeat Radio, and I'm counting down the days to Toronto. Perfect. Thanks, Greg, for the opportunity. On this month's Outbeat Youth segment, we have a young singer-songwriter from Southern California whose original music has been inspired by his own personal journey. He's just released his third album, and here to tell us more about his music is Ryan Zamo. Ryan, welcome to Outbeat Radio. Thank you so much for having me. Well, it's always a pleasure to highlight the accomplishments of young folks particularly someone like yourself who's in music. But before we get into talking about that, why don't you start out by telling us a little bit about yourself, where you grew up, and and how you discovered music. Absolutely. Um, I was born in Wayne, New Jersey, raised there until I was 18. Um, I kind of went through a lot um, with struggling with my mom's alcoholism and um, just kind of feeling lonely. And it wasn't until I was 18 that I was able to move out to Los Angeles, where uh, I kind of found people that accepted me for who I am. And um, it was at, at that point, well, because I always wrote like poetry and um, journal entries when I was going through hard times with my mom. Mm-hmm. Um, so I've always been artistic in writing. Um, and... It was after I went through my own addiction problems uh, that I actually started writing music because it's what kept me sane 
while I was in my dark times. Mm-hmm. And um, then when I came out of it, you know, it told a beautiful story. Um, and I just wanted to share that message with the world. Awesome. And before we talk more about your music, you just picked up from New Jersey on your own and drove to L.A.? Absolutely. What was that like? Well, I knew that um, I wanted to be in the entertainment industry since I was 11 years old. And it was my dream. And uh, not very many people believed me and or had faith in me. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, I'd be lying if I say I, I didn't believe them. But I had to try it. And... Um, if it didn't work, it didn't work, but I refuse to just sit there and say, what if? Good for you. That takes a lot of courage to do that. And, you know, so many people see L.A. as the destination to go to to become famous, to get into acting or music or whatever. And, and it sounds like you're well on your road to making that happen. <laughs> Thank you. I mean, you know, I don't do it for, for the fame and success. You know, I do it because I love it. Okay, so you grew up in New Jersey. Were you out? In New Jersey? Uh, yeah, I actually came out when I was 16. Well, our listeners always love to hear those stories, so tell us a little bit about how that went for you. Yeah, um, and that's a big story that I tell in my um, coming out uh, music, you know. Um, I came out when I was 16, um, and I grew up with my dad because of my mom's alcoholism, because uh, they're divorced since I was like two. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, my dad always said that, you know, he'd be fine with it, you know, kind, kind of hinting, <laughs> knowing that I was gay my, my entire life. So, you know, I felt comfortable telling him. And after I told him, it, it just devastated him. It was after that that, you know, we really didn't have that much of a relationship because he felt like he had nothing to connect with me. My brothers, like, shunned me. And what really irked me was that the community loved it. You know, like I paved a way um, because I played sports and, you know, I am the nicest kid, I, I like to think. Mm-hmm. So it's like coming out like really didn't make anyone else look at me differently, but my family swore that the community looked down upon it. Um, if only they would open up their, their eyes and stop being so ignorant, they would have seen, you, you know. I mean, I was a lot happier, but I was also still stuck in the closet in a way mm-hmm. because I was living to make my family happy. You know, like I was pretending to be more manlier and, you know, I would never mention my boyfriends or who I was dating. And I mean, it was, it was just really rough. So that must have surprised you. you. You obviously heard some hints from your dad that maybe he thought you might be gay. And did that set you up for sort of a, a false sense of security and coming out to him? Absolutely. He was the second person I told. Mm. It, it, it broke my heart, you know. And yeah, like you said, it's a false sense of security. You know, he was like, you can't tell anyone until you were 18. I was like, oh, good, good luck with trying to keep me from doing that. Mm-hmm, <laughs> mm-hmm. So you've written a song about that, I understand. And it's yes. on your brand new CD that yep. we'll, we definitely want to hear about. But tell us about this song a little bit. Um, the song's called Locked Up. Anyone can relate to it, even if you're not gay. You know, it's written towards um, being different and um, kind of being afraid to be yourself. But then you find that one person that just sees you for, for you, and it just opens up the door. 
Fantastic. Well, we've got that song right now. So let's take a listen to Locked Up by Ryan Zamo. I always wondered why I feared the world and had to lie. I had to struggle to find myself, but I found my happiness in you. You showed me the way to follow through I thank God I finally found The one who makes me safe and sound The world around me seems so wrong But now I'm standing on my own When I found you I finally saw Who I was all along Cause who I am is who I wanna be And no one can take that away from me I was locked in the closet for all those years Afraid happiness might disappear I shut my eyes, I turned away But you've made everything I was locked in the closet for all those years Afraid happiness might disappear I shut my eyes, I turned away But you've made everything all okay You showed me how to get up and fight Cause now I'm glad to just be me And see that God made me perfectly But I found my happiness in you But now I'm standing on my own When I found you, I finally saw For all those years Afraid happiness might disappear I shut my eyes, I turned away But you've made everything I was locked in the closet For all those years Afraid happiness might disappear I shut my eyes, I turned away But you've made everything all okay Days are going by And I'm no longer that lonely guy I struck out but I rolled the dice Let me give you my advice I was locked in the closet for all those years Afraid happiness might disappear I shut my eyes, I turned away But you've made everything I was locked in the closet for all those years Afraid happiness might disappear I shut my eyes, I turned away But you've made everything all okay Awesome music, Ryan. Tell us more about the CD that you just released and tell the listeners a little bit about what they can expect. Yeah. Um, my, uh, this is my, my third album. So my music chronicles my life. And uh, the second CD was about coming out and overcoming addiction and you know fighting my past and my demons. And now this CD is about after you come out, just embracing yourself and you know, being who you are and just living life. And that's, that's always a theme with my music, you know, because 
that's my story that I have to tell. And uh, people find it inspirational. And, like, I don't write it to, like, put it in people's faces or to try to inspire people. I write it because that's my journey. And I didn't really have anyone to help me in my journey. So I want uh, my fans to know that there's somebody that they can look up to. Fantastic. So tell us where people can go to hear more of your music and learn more about you. Yeah, uh, they can follow me on Twitter uh, at Ryan Zamo Music. That's Z-A-M-O Music. Uh, RyanZamo.com backslash music. They can download a couple of songs from my first and second CD for free. Um, YouTube.com backslash uh, Ryan Zamo Music. And um, iTunes and Amazon and all those online retailers. Excellent. And we'll have links to all of those sites on our own website at OutBeatNews.com. Ryan, thanks for being with us tonight and best wishes on a successful career. Thank you so much. I really appreciate that. And that brings us to the end of another hour. My thanks to Aaron Morris, Michelle Botno, and Ryan Zamo for joining us tonight. I'll be back on the fourth Sunday of May with another edition of Outbeat News in Depth. Be sure to tune in next Sunday night for Outbeat Radio's Living Proof with Sheridan Gold and Dr. Diana Grayer. That's at 8 p.m. and only here on KRCB Radio, the new 91. In the meantime, have a great week, and thanks for spending your Sunday night with us. Outbeat News in Depth is hosted and produced by Greg Moralia exclusively for KRCB Radio. You can listen to our shows on demand on iTunes and on our website at OutbeatNews.com. And be sure to follow us all week long on our Facebook page and Twitter feed for the latest LGBT news from here in the North Bay and beyond.